Hello, my name is Taryn Thompson, and welcome to another episode of Advancing Talent. Um, I'm excited because I'm joined by Matt Disher, a military veteran whose transition to the corporate world was marked by perseverance and adaptability. Matt's military background, coupled with his unique leadership style, marked by discipline and strategic thinking, has catapulted him to success in the high-stakes world of commercial real estate. Matt currently works with the internationally acclaimed firm Cushman and Wakefield, which we'll learn more about shortly, where he leads their military initiatives. Matt's ability to adapt to changing landscapes, stay ahead of trends and set new standards in his field makes him a true trailblazer. Matt, welcome to the show. I appreciate it, Terrence. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. So Matt, let's jump right in. Um, I enjoy learning more about you and your experiences. Uh, Could you share a little bit more about who you are um, and then the most significant turning point in your professional journey that led you to your current role. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, thanks for having me today. I, I, I look forward to this conversation and, uh, I'm, I'm always interested to share, uh, what has worked in my career and, uh, share best practices. And I, I think about this, the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, I'm a, I'm a father of a 13 year old boy who uh, plays every single sport. Uh, he's actually currently homesick, uh, which is, I guess, what happens when you uh, you get back to school after the holidays, right? Um, I'm, I've been married for uh, just over 15 years. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can probably see from my background, I'm a, I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan. I got a, a signed ball from Jamar Chase over here. Uh, and, uh, you know, my son being a football player, he has aspirations, as, as every young man does, playing sports to maybe go pro one day. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of my time either coaching him or coaching other teams um, in in my time off of work. So I, I coach baseball, I coach basketball, and I coach I coached football till they hit junior high school. And uh, I'm no longer allowed to be a coach at that level uh, as they take it back to the school coaches. So, um, you know, look, I've been doing this type of work that we're going to discuss today for uh, most of my my post military career. And uh, I, I found that uh, I had success here because I was a product of the military. I was the person who left the Marine Corps uh, back in the early 2000s, in 2004, after spending uh, four years as a combat engineer trying to figure out what I do next. And, um, you know, we talk about the turning points in our professional careers and things like that. I joined the military as all of the men in my family going back in generations served in the, in the armed forces. So my grandfather was in World War II. My father served in the Navy during Vietnam. Uh, my older brother was in the Navy. Uh, naturally, for anybody who knows the military, I joined the Marines so I could sit at the dinner table and, uh, and, and we could flex on each other about which branch was better. Uh, but but I, I, I got the advice from everybody along the way that I should join the military and do a a role in the military, learn a skill set or a trade that I can transition out into the world in my post-military career so that there is limited interruption in being able to, to transition and, and figure out what I do with the rest of my life. And so I always had this dream to go do something cool, you know, do the, the military thing that little boys look at doing when they grow up, right? You want to go crawl around in the mud and, and shoot guns and stuff like that. Uh, so I wanted to to get the best of both worlds. So the combat engineer field was exactly that. I got to go travel the world and and potentially learn how to build things 
but also be alongside of infantry and be alongside of combat operations and things like that. Uh, so I figured I'd, I'd use military, the, the military combat engineer field to be able to go into construction trades after my military career. Um, lo and behold, I didn't actually uh, ever build anything in the Marines. I only did explosives. I was only ever attached to an infantry unit blowing things up, which as you can imagine, uh, when I write a resume on the way out, doesn't translate to much. Like the, corporate America doesn't know what to do with a guy who can strap C4 to things and and, and blow it up. And so I found myself uh, very challenged to figure out what I do next. And that has led me to to take this, the, the type of work that I do, it, it, I take it personally. Um, and I don't mean that, I don't mean that with a chip on my shoulder. I mean it, I take it personally because I've I've been there and I've done that. And now I have the opportunity to uh, influence thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people, uh, you know, in the future and make sure that, uh, that the, the, the rough transitions out of the military that historically happened don't happen anymore. Um, so a, a significant turning point in my professional journey that led me to my current career is this. I, I think about when I left the, just a couple of years out of the military, I was finishing my bachelor's degree and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I was working for the city of Cincinnati uh, as a, a 911 operator. I worked 12-hour night shifts from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then I would hang up the headset, hang up the phone, and literally drive to an 8 a.m. class at Northern Kentucky University. So I wouldn't sleep. I got out of the military and decided in the Marines I wasn't going to sleep. And then I got out and did four more years of not sleeping. And and at some point in time, I decided I, I really like sleep and I wanted a regularly scheduled job. And uh, back then, the networking resources that exist today didn't really exist. Uh, you know, this is the middle 2000s, late 2000s, 2008, 2009 in, in that area. So a lot of, of LinkedIn and the ways that we connect online and virtual today just simply didn't exist. Um, but I, I knew that I needed to professionally network. I knew that I could apply to jobs. And in my transition out of the military, I applied to hundreds of jobs or what felt like thousands. And I got a lot of rejection as a lot of job seekers do. I didn't know how to sell myself. Um, and I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do next. And so I took the opportunity to connect with as many professionals as I could. And as it turns out, my my um, my soon-to-be wife at that point, uh, she, she had a a pretty robust network of professionals. A lot of her friends had been in the workforce for some years. And so uh, we were at a Christmas party one time and one of her friend's husbands asked me what I did. And I told him, you know, I, I work for the Cincinnati Police Department and dispatch. I'm answering 911 calls at night. I'm finishing my degree. I'm right out of the military. I'm trying to figure out my life, et cetera, et cetera. And this guy's first question to me was, I, I want to hire more military in my company. And so we started having a conversation for about an hour on the topic. And as it turns out that he was the director of talent acquisition for a, um, a large locally based growing company that is now one of the largest logistics companies in the United States. And he asked me, would it be possible for us to start recruiting from the military veteran population to come to our company? And my answer was uh, unequivocally, yes, absolutely. With the right resources, uh, it's one of the most robust uh, undersought, uh, underutilized populations of men and women at the time, there was a pretty significant unemployment rate among veterans. It was the height of, you know, the Afghan and uh, and Iraq conflicts. And so, uh, the, the the short 
answer to this, the, the short path to this is that he ended up hiring me and I ended up building a world-class recognized program at this company for the next, over the next couple of years. Um, I'd say that the big piece of this conversation really is that it was networking. It came down to who I knew and, and being able to sell my abilities or, or maybe sell my passion in this to, to help them realize that there's a real opportunity here. And then once I got in the door, I proved it. So um, in this line of work, there are only a handful of us who have been doing this as long as I have. There are a bunch of, of other people that do this in, in other big companies, but only a handful of us uh, across corporate America who have been doing this for about, you know, eight, 10 plus years. Yeah, Matt, I, I love that. And I can sense your, your passion. And so uh, throughout your career, so you've been known for this, uh, this kind of unwavering dedication and skill set, um, especially with the military community. Uh, so could you share some particular challenges that your uh, current company uh, faced and those traits that help, uh, that you help navigate through? I'd say, I'd say that one of the most memorable challenge, challenges that I think a lot of us have faced recently, we could probably all relate to this, is, uh, is what happened through COVID. Uh, COVID shutdowns um, and COVID shutdowns were very impactful. Uh, depending on where you were in the country, you probably felt it more than others or less than others. Uh, some places it was, it, was, it was very significant. Other places it wasn't as significant. Um, you know, at the time when all of this was happening, I didn't think of myself as a more experienced person on the team. I, I, I didn't think of myself as maybe one of the elders or maybe one of the senior people that could give advice to the younger people. Uh, I, I have always considered myself very young at heart and, and very young in emotion. And so when those shutdowns came around, I too was sitting there you know, maybe cracking my knuckles and, and wringing my hands wondering, geez, what does this mean? You know, um, but I very quickly realized that I was in a unique position, um, not only among my company, but but among the population in which I work, the community in which I work. And that is that uh, given the experience that I have in the military as a Marine, uh, you know, we work in discontinuous circumstances. Uh, things are often difficult. There's often very little uh, very little guidance. And uh, especially when I was a sergeant in the Marines, I had even less guidance, right? It was we operated off of commander's intent, which might be a, a term that I use later on as well. Commander's intent essentially means this, in the lack of orders or, or in the absence of guidance, what did the boss want us to get done? What did the boss want us to do? And uh, that happens in the military. Your radio stops working, you're cut off from the guy on the other side of the town who's giving you orders or giving you commands. Uh, and you have to be able to figure out what to do next without a whole lot of guidance. And so um, I found myself mentoring younger careerists inside of the organization that were asking questions like, what does this mean and what happens next? And I, I leaned upon my experience, not only in the military, but also, and I mentioned before that I, I was a, a 911 operator and I actually trained 911 operators and communications operators in the city of Cincinnati. Uh, it's a medium-sized city with a lot going on. We would frequently take calls, uh, calls for violence on the streets and police officers who need help and people stuck in burning buildings and things like that. And those are, those are crisis moments, right? And you have to be able to mitigate the risk to other people, but you, have, you also have to interpret what's happening and, and in some cases send the appropriate response. Uh, it, it's very similar. Uh, you're, you're giving maybe a younger careerist who's a couple of years inside the doors here, 
a little bit of advice on maybe how to handle the crisis and, and what this means. And, and sometimes it's reassuring that, hey, everything's going to be okay. It might not take the path that you want it to take, but everything's going to eventually work out in the end. And this thing won't last forever. There, there, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. So um, I found my responsibility being a little bit of adding glue, not only inside of my company, but externally via, via thought leadership. I was adding glue where maybe people felt like things were coming undone. And uh, helping people realize that this was temporary, and although there will be changes, our respective abilities to perform when the lights get turned back on, they're going to be paramount. The lights are going to come back on. We 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 can't sit back and say, "Oh no, uh, 15 days to slow the curve or whatever." Like I'm just going to sit back and not do anything. We have to be ready for the lights to come back on. And so um, we have to stay calm. We had to assess our situation, ask questions, stay close to each other. And, uh, and and effectively don't come unglued when when things become ambiguous or challenging. And I think that those are uh, good traits that any leader has to have. Uh, but those most memorably, and I think that a lot of people can relate to that. That's uh, it's what happened during the COVID shutdowns. And I think we we all could probably sit in the same room and have a very similar conversation. Yeah, I really like that. I love the word call, especially as a leader. You're right. I think COVID taught a lot of us in different sectors uh, that we have to pivot and change and maybe try new things. But uh, at the end of the day, the lights will come back on. So thank you so much for that. So can you share uh, an instance uh, where your strategic decision making significantly impacted uh, the success of your company? Yeah. You know, I had to think about this one because there are a number of, of, of examples that I could give you, but I'll tell you, uh, one of the the big things that I push, not only inside of our company, but also alongside of our friends and, and our clients and other organizations that knock on my door and ask for advice, um, we we have advised hundreds of other companies on how to build programs similar to what I do. And and it's, uh, I mean, just yesterday, we, yeah, I, I won't mention them by name, but some of the largest companies in the, in the world have asked us. Hey, how are you running these programs? So what, what works for you? What doesn't work for you? Can we have advice? Can you share the playbook? And uh, large and small, some of the, the best advice, strategic advice that I give them that I have implemented here at, at Cushman Wakefield is that the programs that we are doing here, although it's it's based around reaching top talent coming out of the military or veteran population, although that you know at the beginning of all of this, we started this to, to hire the best of the best out of the armed forces and bring them into our organization or out of the veteran population or the military spouse population, right? Just these robust, undersought, uh, underutilized populations of, of men and women. Um, these programs are not only about talent and, and there are actual dollar amounts and financial impacts that should be tied to them. And, and I mentioned that because a lot of organizations that are just putting these programs together struggle for resources. They want to go to events. They want to sponsor uh, large organizations. They want to sponsor different initiatives. And when I talk to almost everybody I talk to, I ask them what budget looks like. And I ask them you know, what they have planned to, to get done, what they need to get done. And that's typically a challenge. I, I can't travel to this event because I don't have a travel budget. And and generally, what I what I tell them is I faced this for very early early on in my career. I faced the same type of uh, of challenge to overcome, and it took me a few years before I realized that we have to we really have to bring 
bottom line impact into our conversations around storytelling about how these programs work. Uh, and that may go without saying, some people might listen to this and say, well, well, yeah, everything has a bottom line impact. That's how business operates. Of course, that's, that's what we do. Uh, two things that we looked at implementing immediately that moved the needle. Uh, one is work opportunity tax credit. Uh, when I first came on board here at Cushman, we, we were not collecting the work, work opportunity tax credit, um, WOTC as it's called uh, in the world of acronyms. WOTC is a federal tax incentive that offers rebates for, for hiring people who may be underserved in the community. So tax opportunity zones, people who have been unemployed, maybe who have collected government assistance in the last 12 months, veterans, uh, disabled, unemployed veterans, people who might have a a harder challenge to reach the flagpole, right? Um, we weren't collecting any of this. And this is a, a bottom line impact item that says, hey, listen, a lot of these incentives are available for hiring veterans. And, and especially through the COVID era, we were hiring a lot of people uh, who had probably previously seen some unemployment in the last 12 months or the last year and a half or whatever. I mean, that's what COVID, that's what the, the lockdowns did to a lot of people. So what we found was that there was a, a significant uh, federal tax incentive available to us, uh, not only exclusive to veterans, but for for anybody. And it represents, uh, I don't have the exact number, but it represents millions of dollars, potentially millions of dollars per year uh, that we can then use to come back and storytell a little bit around our programs and, and how we're not exclusively a cost center and that there are financial incentives to running programs like this. The second thing we did was we implemented the DOD SkillBridge program, which I talk about quite a bit. Department of Defense offered in the last handful of years, they offered a program that allows uh, transitioning service members in their last up to six months of military service to go intern in companies, uh, large and small, intern and in, they can intern at educational institutions, they can intern at large, small businesses, uh, they can intern vir virtually anywhere, do uh, on-the-job training cycles and things like that, certification processes. At the end of the day, the short version of this is that Department of Defense pays for, it continues to pay them their military salary while they come intern in companies like ours. The incentive for us is that now I have a person who may be unrelated to our industry, or maybe they have some of the soft skills that that match up well to what we do, but they don't have any of the hard skills or experience in our industry. I can bring them in at no risk during a three or four month, typically a training cycle and it give them all of the immersive exposure to our business. And the department of defense has paid for the entire thing. And that also represents at scale millions of dollars in what I call cost offsets to the company. It's an incentive for a hiring manager to now say, well, yes, I would love to take a chance on this person. I need an engineer to manage uh, moving parts in a skyscraper that we manage in a large metro area. Can you find me a person who's been working on mechanical systems on an aircraft carrier? They don't have any experience in a building, but if you turn an aircraft carrier up on its side, up on its end, it effectively has all the same systems that a building does. It has lights and toilets and air conditioning and heating and boilers and all those things, right? So uh, if you can manage an aircraft carrier systems or a ship systems, or you can manage facilities in the Air Force, you can certainly manage facilities in our industry. So we we, we tackled a few of these uh, large strategic decisions to approach these different programs. A is a way, again, to reach top talent, incentivize reaching top talent, but also it has this bottom line impact that now represents millions of dollars of cost offset. So it allows us to take that back to the storyboard when we ask for a budget or we ask for headcount or we ask for sponsorships of events 
hey, by the way, the programs that we're already running have effectively either saved us or generated us millions of dollars in outcomes. Yeah, Matt, I love uh, the work that you're doing and the work that Christian and Wakefield are doing to uh, really attract top uh, talent, right? I'm especially when we think about individuals from underserved backgrounds, when we think of our military community. Uh, you talked earlier about, hey, I just, you know, I just need the opportunity, right? I think right. that um, so many individuals that uh, have the, the skill set to, to do the job, but they just absolutely just need that push or um, they need that company or individuals to to be in their corner to help them how to get to that next level. So so let's turn the page a little bit um, here. Um, so um, resilience is a quality that really stands out in your professional life. Um, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, can you discuss a time uh, when this was put to the test and how you emerged from Gosh, resilience, right? I think uh, this is a, it's, it sounds like one of those interview questions. Tell me about a time when, right? And and sometimes we laugh at these because we think to ourselves, I could tell you about a million times when my resilience was put to the test. It's it's an everyday thing, no matter where you go. Uh, I'll tell you this. I, I mentioned before that my transition out of the military was difficult. Um, and, and my story, by the way, is not unique. So if you were to survey 100 other E5s who left the Marine Corps or left the military, uh, I would I would venture to say that something over 95% of them would probably agree that their transition was not the easiest thing to do. Uh, it's just because military service is it's an entire lifestyle. Uh, the way I like to equate it is you are inside of a room and that room has windows. You can see out, but you really live inside of that room and you're alongside of other people that wear the same uniform as you. They speak the same language as you. They don't always look like you, but you become brothers and sisters. And all of your cultural items are very much the same. The pictures on the wall, the TV shows you watch, everything is the same. One day that door opens and they ask you to leave or you decide to leave that door and you're not allowed back in that door. And everything that you know from job to workplace, the, the people in the room with whom you sleep, right? Everything, the people you've been working with for years are still inside of that room and you have to walk away from it. So it's it's little more or it's a little more than just switching jobs or graduating college and starting your you know, your next step, it's an entire lifestyle change. And, and my transition out of the military was again, very commonly, like a lot of people, it was a tough challenge. Um, but that's what the Marine Corps taught me. It, it was resilience. That is what the Marine Corps is. Uh, and a lot of branches and a lot of occupational specialties in the military also share, share this. We operate in discontinuous circumstances with very little guidance. Again, I mentioned commander's intent. Sometimes it's just I know what they want me to do. I know what they want me to get done. Uh, now let's use the tools and the resources available to go get it done. Um, I, I use an example uh, from 2017. Uh, I used to lead the CentOS Corporation's military and veterans programs. And CentOS Corporation had one of the longest running military and veterans programs dating back to uh, the early 90s. Uh, Dick Farmer who passed away just a couple of years ago. Dick Farmer was the founder of the CentOS Corporation. He was, a, he was a Marine Corps officer. And at one point in time, he took his business and said, how do I grow this thing? And how do I find managers and leaders to be able to effectively grow? And one of his strategies, one of his thought processes was around bringing in people out of the military to come lead inside of his organization. So the culture of that organization is very stated the leadership are among the best in the world, among the best I've ever worked with. 
And uh, I was running this program. I had a lot of access to the C-suite and to the executive team. My mentors and my best connections there were uh, leaders that still sit in seats there. Uh, some of the best people I've ever worked alongside. But I, I made the decision to leave the organization to pursue a, a position that would have offered me a, a, a larger paycheck and more responsibility. Uh, and, and it allowed me to step out of what I was doing at CentOS. Not that it wasn't a great company, but it, it simply didn't have that next step for me at that moment. So I pursued something else and a uh, very tough decision to make. But I, I went to a smaller organization to lead a talent acquisition team. Uh, soon after I started, uh, the company went into a months long hiring freeze and, and my team was effectively disassembled among the chaos. So I left an amazing organization uh, to, to go somewhere else that now was in uh, what felt like a little bit of turmoil. turmoil. So um, I, after about a year, I was out the, uh, I was out the door at that place. Uh, it was one of my shortest tenures in my career. And uh, it, it made me question a lot of my own values. Did I do something wrong? Was there something I could have done differently? Uh, part of the challenge was uh, leadership was a little bit in turmoil at this organization. I didn't have much of a chance to make many friends very quickly. Uh, I was an outsider coming into an organization where there were a lot of people that had been there for quite some time. And, you know, it's a smaller company that moves a little bit quicker. So when when challenges come around the corner, they come around the corner very quickly and, and there's very little, there's not really a way to project them. And so I found myself in the middle of that and uh, it, it was a, a, a smaller place that was experiencing some growing pains and some, some leadership crises. But I, I learned from this challenge after I left, I learned what was most important to me in a career. Uh, it wasn't money. It wasn't uh, necessarily titles or anything like that. What I found was the most important thing to me, first of all, was the flexibility and ability to do my job, the job for which you've hired me, the job for which you're paying me to do. I want to be the best at it. And in part, some of that success comes from having really solid leadership that we're working alongside. So it, it became the ability to succeed, the ability to have successes and wins, but also the people with whom I'm working alongside. I had to have a stronger culture. I had to have strong mentors and things like that. So when we talk about resilience, it was very easy for me in the, the middle of my career to walk away from that event and kind of say, oh man, I, I shouldn't have done that. Or I made a mistake in leaving one, one great company. And you know, where am I going to end up? And I, I tell people today that had I not left CentOS and had I not pursued this other opportunity and had that opportunity not falling apart, I wouldn't be where I am today. Again, working on a great team with really amazing people and having produced some of the best results of my entire career. So uh, resilience is is key. You have to be able to, as they say, you know, get knocked down, but get back up and, and continue to brush yourself off. Yeah, Matt, I love that we learned from our lived experiences uh, that we added. And I would agree with you. I think strong culture leadership is important in organization. I mean, then also having that camaraderie with your colleagues to be able to uh, bounce ideas off, right? That's where diversity comes. They talked a little bit about that earlier and having the notion that uh, we may not, may not all think alike, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we can come together to really do great things uh, at an organization. So, so Matt, uh, you're considered an inspiration uh, by your peers um, and, and having this short discussion with you, I've learned so much about you. How do you cultivate a positive working environment? 
You know, this is a we. This is one of those ones we could talk about for for days, right? And and there would be a lot of different views on on how to cultivate a positive working environment or a motivating working environment. Uh, as a, the storyteller that I am, I I I like to kind of beat around the bush for a second to get where we're going. But there's a book by an author called Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. And the statement leaders eat last comes from the Marine Corps and, and, and other parts of the military, but largely it's a cultural item out of the Marine Corps, uh, wherein it is expected that if you're going to eat a meal, the junior people eat first and the senior people eat last. So if you were to line up for, for lunch, uh, in order of rank, you would have all of the junior people in the, in the, in the front of the line. And the last person in the line should be the highest ranking person. The reason for that is in the military, at least in the Marine Corps, it's understood that the lower ranking people are doing a lot of the work. They are the production. They are the troops that you hear on the news when they say we've deployed 20,000 troops and they're in the streets fighting or whatever. In a lot of cases, that's your, your E1s through your E4s and E5s. They are the junior people on the streets doing all the work. They're, they're the ones who are not going to sleep for three days. They're the ones who have to bear the burden of of getting the job done. Uh, the leaders are there in, in essence to make decisions and oftentimes aren't up there in the front lines running and gunning. And I would say the same thing is true. If you look at it from a perspective of production, the same thing is true in, in most companies. Um, your job as an executive leader is not necessarily to go down in the weeds and, and for example, in talent acquisition, do all the interviewing, right? You're going to end up interviewing a candidate that you're going to hire at some point in time, but it's not your job to go flip through resumes. Somebody, who is junior at a, a more junior level might be doing that type of work. Your job as a, as a leader is to look at ways and break down barriers to success. Uh, so you're looking at ways to empower your team and ensure that they are able to do their jobs that, that, that if, if we are, if the company is cutting them a check, they're able to come to work and be as effective with the resources that they're offered as effective as they can um, to, to, to get the job done, which, as any leader will attest, if your team is effective, you are effective as a leader. Um, the concept of a, a, a leader eats last is really just the reference of putting your team first. It's putting your team before you. Um, and and that is a primary function of leadership, as, again, as I mentioned, breaking down barriers and, and challenges to allow the job to get done. So it's a, it's a tip of a cap to what we call servant leadership. It just means that uh, your role is there to ensure that uh, that you are taking care of your people. They're not taking care of you. You should never ask them for anything personally. It, sh it should always be the other way around. I should ask them, what can I do for you? What do you need? What what can I go influence? As a leader, in some cases, that might be, hey, we need money to, to buy a tool that's going to make our jobs a little bit easier or maybe make us a little bit more effective. Let me go fight for that money. Let me go get those resources. Let me go make sure that we have what we need uh, to, to, to get the job done. So, a lot of leaders think that they have to have all of the answers and do all of the talking. And I think another great trait of a strong leader is to hire the right people, uh, guide them to decisions. Again, I used the term, the commander's intent, right? Give them the intent of the leadership, give them the intent of their role and their job description, but then just get out of their way and allow them to make decisions um, and and allow them to uh, to be able to grow their own paths. And I think that what stifles a lot of people is in their careers and, and what 
makes some leaders hard to work with. And what makes some people leave companies is if they were never afforded the opportunity to maybe come up with an idea and execute it, or or if the culture of the organization is you don't come up with ideas, only the leadership does, that doesn't work. You you have, you know, let's say at least 20% of your workforce are future leaders, at least 20%, some greater than others. Uh, not everybody wants to be a leader, but let's assume you have that 20%. And they are simply not able to come to the table with ideas or innovations, or we're not asking the right questions to get to those ideas or innovations. Uh, you're going to have those people leave for a more uh, a more continuous and supportive or nurturing environment. So um, I, as a leader, I ask for input. I don't always have all the answers. I do ask a lot of questions. I ask questions of my superiors as well. If I simply need guidance on something, um, some of those are silly questions. Some of those are maybe questions I didn't need to ask, but at the end of the day, it gives me a little bit more uh, insight into what's going on. You know, at, at the end of the day, people spend more time at work than they do at home with their families. And and uh, when micro stresses and micro stresses and challenges uh, start to add up, people start looking at what else is out there. And uh, creating an unnecessarily challenging environment doesn't benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit the leader who's then going to have to replace the people that leave. But also your your people that you have doing the work on the bottom, um, they're the, the guy who's on day one is is eventually going to get conditioned to kind of be like, all I'm here to do is drone on. I don't get to innovate. I don't get to do anything beyond droning on. So uh, ask a lot of questions. I ask for people's input. I give a lot of credit where credit's due. I like to brag about my people and, and their accomplishments. Um I make decisions where I have to in order to lead, but I'm not doing all the talking all the time, although that's what we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you talk about this this notion of servant leadership, and I actually was just having a conversation with my team uh, about how we spend more time with each other than we do our own families, like just to lead to. And I think you're absolutely right. Like We have to find ways that we empower uh, our workforce, right? And I think one of the ways in which we empower them is kind of what you talked about. How do we let them be the decision makers in their respective areas that we step in uh, in times where we need to, right? And I think that right. that is what uh, a great organization and that's also what makes it great culture. Uh, so could you discuss the most significant contributions you've made in your industry and how you made uh, a difference? Yeah, you know, something that comes to mind is is, and this doesn't necessarily have mu as much to do with the commercial real estate industry as much as it has to do with the line of work in which I in which I operate, which is the the community of of military and veterans and things like that. While this does have a direct impact on our respective industry, and and we are the leader among our respective industry in terms of how to run military and veterans programs, uh, among the other global commercial real estate companies, we're, we're leading the pack on this. Uh, something that comes to mind is that I mentioned before that we run the Department of Defense Skillbridge program here. We were early adopters of this. We were early adopters of creating a robust uh, DOD Skillbridge offering here at Cushman and Wakefield. So we, we opened the gates and we ran as fast as we could when a lot of other companies were trying to figure out how they should participate in this type of program. So uh, one of the major significant contributions we've we've given is that we have advised hundreds of other companies on also how to build these types of programs. And so not only did we build it up and develop the best practices and go through all the challenges and mistakes and you know we took our lumps, but then we shared 
taking our lumps with everybody else and we said, do this, not that, or don't make this mistake or do make this mistake or, or whatever it might be. Um, and so we, we learned a lot of lessons along the way that allowed us to and still allow us to provide and, and share advice and guidance. Um, I mentioned previously about the, the the financial impact of this or programs like this, and, and we're starting to really discuss and influence taking these programs beyond nice to have and, and just beyond ERGs and just beyond recruiting and tie them back to the business uh, objectives and client outreach. And what I mean by that is I, I recently shared a thing on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I like to share a lot of stories on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm, I'm very active in there. That's where I do a lot of my networking and storytelling. Um, I shared on LinkedIn that if you dig up the annual spend power of the U.S. veteran population, it estimates around $200 billion a year. So that means veterans in the United States have a spend power of about $200 billion a year. If you add in active duty military, their spouses and their affiliated family members, et cetera, that number becomes $1 trillion in annual spend power. So this whole population represents about a trillion dollars in annual spend power. It means that that's how much money they can take to the market to to spend. Uh, Veteran-owned businesses represent uh, about $950 billion a year in receipts. And so that's, um, I think the number comes out to be around 10% of U.S. businesses are veteran-owned businesses. And you can look this up. Uh, there, there's, there are a lot of stats, uh, census stats and Department of Labor and things like that. There there are a lot of uh, data points out there that tell you about this. Uh, uh, the same amount of receipts, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, all of this stuff is kept in in a lot of uh, statistics that you can look up. But the, the, the point of all this is that um, one of the most significant contributions we're making right now is also trying to teach the companies who are asking for advice that these programs have got to be tied to bottom line impact. They remain unsustainable if you're not tying them to to something beyond just uh, what I call belonging in a company. Like veterans, you belong here in this company. That's good. That feels really good. And we're getting the best talent in the world out of that. But at the end of the day, businesses, educational institutions, hospitals, you name it, they operate off of and they provide resources to things that uh, that that make money. That's how business operates in the United States. Um, and so- there has to be unapologetically a conversation around the dollars. Uh, and I, I think some people have a bad taste in their mouth about this because they're like, well, I, I came into this industry. I want to do this stuff because it's the right thing to do. And it absolutely is the right thing to do. It has has everything to do with, again, engaging top populations of people, diverse populations of people. It's the most educated and experienced population of men and women in the world. Um so we're not only getting, again, top talent from the, the U.S. workforce and significantly impacting the careers and, and lives of our veterans and their spouses and, and their family members, but we're also doing well for our respective companies and our clients. And that in, in our industry, we're a very client-focused, relationship-based business, which means that our clients like to hear that we're doing this type of work. And in a lot of cases, our clients are doing this type of work and they want to know best practices. And, and what that offers us is the ability to share those stories with them and tell them, hey, by the way, client A, B, and C, you have 13 veterans in our company working on your account. So we hired 13 veterans out of the 50 people that work you know, on your account from our company. 
13 of them are veterans, for example. And let's say the decision maker at that organization is themselves tied to the military veteran population. That has now a cultural alignment. It has cultural meaning to this person. Um, I don't have a lot of the statistics around this, but we see people aligning themselves to brands and business that uh, align to their personal values. We see that more and more, especially with the advent and, and the growth of social media. People will avoid certain companies and not buy from certain companies based on their political or cultural beliefs. And and some other people will almost exclusively go to other companies because they do align. They see them doing that work in the community. And so we're, we really have to bet on that when we go to, to market with these types of programs. So all of this combined makes for a very powerful business case. And at the end of the day, allows us to continue to positively influence future outcomes for, in this case, the veteran community. But we can't we can't do that more effectively in the future if we don't tie it back to the financial impact and then be able to 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 vie for resources inside of an organization to continue to grow these programs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, that bottom line is important, right? We have to have the resources. So thank you so much for that. And speaking of, of organizations, uh, we're always talking about this word innovation, right? Uh, and so you've held various roles at Cushman and Wakefield. Um, how have these experiences really shaped your leadership style um, in approach innovation? Yeah, so I have largely worked in the same field during my tenure at Cushman, but I've I've taken on a few different roles or or worn a couple of different hats or or signed into different billets, as they say. Um, we all take on additional responsibilities. So so while my while the team that I'm on and the, the job that I do is it, it has evolved a bit, uh, the the operation has been largely the same since I've been here. I have helped co-found uh, our disability employee resource group and uh, to breathe some new life into our veterans ERG. Uh, I've worked in some different projects with a, a couple of different people around the company and, and things unrelated to my job. Um, you know, the the unique thing about what I do here at Cushman Wakefield is that I work across all service lines of the business and across all ranks of people, geographies, and specialties. So in a lot of large companies, things tend to be very siloed either by project or I'm sorry, product or by service uh, or by geography. And and ours is not, ours is similar to that too, right? So people that work in Dallas might almost exclusively work in Dallas or with clients in Dallas. And they might not be talking to a lot of people in other business lines or service lines in say Seattle or New York City or, or whatever it might be. So I have this ability and this scope that I'm working with literally almost everybody inside of this organization across all geographies. Uh, so every day I'm, I'm meeting new people and I'm learning new things. Uh, no two days are really the same here. And my scope of responsibility, while it's overall leading a specific program, can change uh, based on the the unique needs of whichever respective leader or team with whom I'm working at the moment. So uh, I come to every call or meeting with a sense of what I can provide or what questions I need to ask in order to get to what I can provide. Uh, I keep meticulous stats and data as well. So we always have, I mentioned the the spend power of the veteran population and things like that. Like those are those are nuggets that I keep in my head because it makes for a very compelling conversation around what we're trying to accomplish and make sure that if we want to talk about talent or dollars, we have all those stats ready to go. Um, it's shaped my 
all of these experiences and, and this large scope has has shaped my my leadership style to either be assertive or a servant, depending on which situation I'm in. And I think that while I'm not talking innovation, uh, like a product based innovation, what I'm talking about is is leadership innovation, and that means that I might humbly come into a call where I know very little, and I have to listen. Uh, I might also humbly coming into the next call where I have to be the subject matter expert and I have 25 year, you know, 30 year, 40 year tenured people who are stopping everything to listen to what I'm saying. And I have to offer them uh, in a clear, concise manner, something useful that's going to be useful to them to go execute business or do whatever it is that they're doing. So um, I, I think what that offers me in my line of work that, as I mentioned in the in the previous question and answer that a lot of companies haven't quite figured out is that we have brought to bear the the significant financial or business impact of what we're doing. And so what that means is that the innovation here is that the wide scope allows us to influence a lot of people to have a lot of really great results, which then affords us the ability to have resources to continually innovate, to continue to build programs like Department of Defense SkillBridge, where we signed on with the uh, Department of Defense Military Spouse Employment Program last year. Uh, It's a vetted partnership, right? Or to go and effectively sponsor something like we're sponsoring in March the IVMF Veteran Edge Conference uh, in Dallas. Uh, And it's a a collection of hundreds of veteran-owned small businesses now we're able to come in and tell hundreds of veteran-owned small businesses how they can do business with a large company like us as subcontractors, for example, which helps them to take their business from $500,000 a year to $2 million a year, right? So that's all innovation. It's it's the ability to go out and storytell what we're doing so that we generate additional opportunities, not only to hire, again, the best talent in the United States, but also to now impact business to impact small businesses and large businesses. But then we sit down at the table sometimes with our largest clients who are some of the largest companies in the world. And we tell them what we've done in this space, which in a lot of cases that offers uh, a, a sense of relationship back to renewing more work with them or gaining more work with them. So uh, I'd say constant evolution, um, having the ability to, to be either assertive or a servant uh, has allowed us innovation in, in the work that I do. And that's that's how we evolve and that's how we continue to innovate and do better every day. Yeah, man, I love the notion of leadership innovation. I actually like to take that back to my team. I think you're absolutely right. A lot of times I show up to meetings as well when I'm thinking, okay, how can I innovate from a leadership standpoint? How can I continue to motivate a team so we can galvanize uh, toward the common movie or common thing, right? So thank you so much for that. How do you envision the future of your industry and what role do you see for your company in yourself? So the the commercial real estate industry has been and will continue to have strong elements of relationship-based business along with world-class service. That's that is how we do business. We we are a relationship-based function that then has to execute best in class service. So that's what keeps and wins businesses, uh, or, or rather what what wins and keeps business. Um, you know, the, the, the future of this industry relies on new and, innov- new and innovative ways to use space, uh, just as an example. Uh, so you've seen previous office space repurposed into multifamily space, for example, 
retail has evolved over the last few decades uh, in mixed use spaces have become very popular. I know in my own hometown, what used to be shopping malls then became empty buildings and are now what we call mixed use. They're these, these outdoor walking malls with apartment buildings and offices on top of them. So it's, you know, generating and, and regenerating uh, the existence of, of already used property or repurposing that property. Um, I, in my, in my role, I don't play as much of a part in the innovation and change of the actual commercial real estate industry. What I do is uh, I create new opportunities to connect and stay connected to our clients and our pursuits. So we have clients, again, as I mentioned before, that are very interested in our military and veterans programs and our results. And so we often end up with quarterly business reviews, or I end up in conversations with companies that we're talking to about renewing services or, or about maybe closing new business. Uh, and the person on the other side of the phone has themselves served in the Marine Corps, for example, uh, or, or you know, another member of my team is former Army or or Air Force or whatever. We end up at the at the table having the same conversation because the military and veteran space, as an example, is. Uh, exceptionally fraternal. Uh, I mentioned before, people align to cultural values. Uh, if I'm talking to another Marine, I know that I have been through or that person has been through the same thing I've been through or a very, a very common experience, right? So um, that that type of thing is very meaningful in relationship building, that, that cultural alignment, the alignment to values. Um, my team is a storytelling machine. I believe that in a a world full of distractions, messages, and politics, uh, people want to align to things that meet their cultural values, and so that's something that our work offers. It 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 doesn't necessarily we're not necessarily changing the landscape of our our whole industry in real estate, um, but what we can do is influence and change and positively impact the way that real estate relationships are are made and continued. I like that a lot, Matt. So this next question is going to be a two-part question. Um, so in what ways has Cushman and Wakefield transformed under your leadership? And then part two of that question is, um, could you share some of the notable milestones? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I, what came to mind initially for this question is, again, that we were an early adopter of DOD SkillBridge, which was a really big program that, that came to light and it continues to evolve and and. Uh, this program aims to solve many of the problems and issues that people historically face when they leave the military. So that, while that doesn't seem outwardly facing, it doesn't seem like it's a, a, a large milestone or a big accomplishment for anybody. What we're looking at is generations upon generations of men and women coming out of the military, either post-conflict or not during conflict, and then facing this existential uh, challenge of, of, of homelessness and suicide and, and all of the other things that veterans face that you see on the news and in pop culture. And so um, we rolled that out and moved very quickly in, and also moved very quickly towards success to be able to share our results, which has then influenced uh, just a ton of other companies to build something similar and to do the same type of work. Again, I use the term, the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, we look at the, the nature of who joins the military, it is exceptionally diverse. It's educated. It's experienced. It's men. It's women. It's, it's a cross-section of the population in the United States. And a lot of people join the military so that they find a new opportunity that perhaps they didn't have previous to the military. 
that's another big issue that the 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 respective branches are facing right now in uh, a, a shortfall of of people joining the military. So part of my argument back to that is if everybody leaves the armed forces with a great job or opportunity, it simply acts kind of like a great educational institution would. P- more people are going to want to join the military to go get their educational benefits or to get some sort of life skill that's going to pr- project them into uh, the next phase of their life successfully. But if they are not coming out of the military successfully, then that becomes a, a negative story back to the future generations of people joining the military. And they're like, well, everybody I know that went in the military fell on their faces on the way out. Why am I going to want to join? Right. So what we want here are significant storytelling opportunities to show the E4, E5 getting out of the military, making $55,000 a year coming to a company like ours, making 80 or 90 or a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, right out of the military, because the specialty they learned in the armed forces was so valuable to us that we're willing to pay them and then promote them and keep them around. Right. So that's a, that's a pretty big initiative or, or a, a significant project that we worked on in sharing around the business. Now we have hiring managers knocking on our door, trying to get this talent, becoming more aware of how valuable this talent is. Um, and so again, we're able to network this back to a, a lot of other companies, which then become our clients and, and our friends out here in the world. Uh, I'll give you another example of something we're working on. And, and this this plays back into how the projects and work that we're doing impact the business or the industry as a whole. Um, we're working on a project with a, an organization called Oscar Mike. They are a, a nonprofit actually just west of Chicago. Um, Oscar Mike as as I thought, I went to buy some apparel from them. I thought they were just an apparel company when I first met them. I thought they just made t-shirts, custom t-shirts. I knew they were veteran owned, but I was like, I need some shirts um, as as we want some, some apparel for our people to wear. And they introduced me to what a lot of their apparel sales are actually paying for. And what they're doing is supporting, um, in short, teams and networks for profoundly wounded and disabled veterans. So they have wheelchair basketball and wheelchair rugby teams. They have these different outings. They have a, a compound on a lake and they take people out on, on boats and expeditions and things like that. And it's really cool, but it's expensive to continue to run that. And so they do this for you know a number of veterans at a time. They'll bring in, again, profoundly wounded veterans who are in, in a lot of cases, amputees or, uh, or uh, wheelchair bound or quadriplegic or paraplegic. And they will put them in these different situations to, to be around other veterans that have had this similar challenge. And that was really meaningful to us. Um, and when they told us about this idea that they were going to build this compound west of Chicago, that was going to be, it was going to have hoteling uh, for 20 plus veterans. So they could fly people in from around the country and have uh, specially outfitted rooms for people who are differently abled, right? Uh wider doors, elevators, uh, accessible rooms and, and, and spaces and things like that. We were like, well, who's helping you build this project? And they said, well, we don't have anybody yet. And I said, can we? Because uh, that's a, a, it's a service that we offer at Project Development Services. And so I introduced them to our Chicago team. And now we're working with a number of other world-class contractors to put this project together. Right now, it's, it's coming up with the funds to make the thing work. Um, but it's a, a great example of how the relationships and, and the work that we do, it has nothing to do with recruiting and talent or anything like that. Oscar Mike was aware of the program that we were running inside of our, pro, inside of our company. 
and how it was impacting the lives of veterans. And they shared that same cultural alignment. We're also impacting the lives of veterans. We're impacting, they are impacting the lives of veterans who have lost so much and who've had most significant challenges. And now we're able to work alongside of them as a business in helping them build what will be a first of its kind world-class facility with, I think I mentioned this, but it's going to have basketball courts, uh, indoor basketball courts, common spaces, kitchens, uh, dirt tracks, maybe a gun range, all kinds of stuff for people to, to come visit and stay for days and engage as as a community. Uh, ultimately, with the the end result of them being able to meet one another and, and have a, a newfound network of brotherhood and sisterhood that maybe they lost when they left the military. So it's just an example of how we work in the community. It's culturally aligned and, 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 and we're able to continue to impact and impact uh, the business that we're doing, but also impact our clients and, and the rest of the community with whom we're working. So Matt, in what ways has Cushing and Wakefield transformed under your leadership? And could you share some of those notable milestones? Yeah, you know, I was told by a a previous boss in a previous company that I didn't brag enough that I need to speak louder about accomplishments. Uh, but it's it's not my style. Although I am a storyteller, I like to give collective feedback on all of our successes. It's it's uh, it's not done by an individual. It's done by a whole, a whole team of people and our friends, right? So we we don't have the successes we have without even some of our vendors and and other companies who have helped us with advice as we have helped so many others. Uh, I, I'd say this: since I've been here, um, we've put ourselves on the map as a top ranked military friendly company. Um, there are a couple of different ranking systems. We do some surveys and uh, and, and some inputs. And we talk about our programs, and uh, those end up with us being on on top of the world, essentially, in companies that have programs built. We still have a lot of work to do. We we don't cover everything in our programs. It's pretty interesting when you benchmark with other organizations or when you benchmark with best practices. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. But what I have found is when I'm benchmarking. Uh, we are sitting on the top of the pile. We're doing many of the things that a lot of other organizations are not doing. And that's back to that conversation about having the right resources and the people to get it done. A lot of organizations just haven't evolved to that point yet. Um, these these rankings are not only great opportunities to sell to candidates who are looking for, for jobs in the company to see that we have uh, you know, we're ranked as a best workplace or best place for women or best place for veterans or whatever it might be. Um, but it's also, as I mentioned before, it's something that we can take back to our clients uh, who have, who are, again, some of the largest businesses in the United States or small businesses who might also be aligned to this type of work. And it allows us a, a storytelling opportunity uh, almost everywhere we go. It allows us, allows us again, that 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 cultural nuance that that says, hey, if if we need a an icebreaker, right, we can come into virtually any conversation um, and have a conversation about this type of program. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Whenever I speak to a group of people, uh, I typically ask one of the first questions I ask is, "How many of you have served in the military?" And you'll get five or ten percent that raise their hands, or God forbid, a couple raise their hand in a group of hundreds, right? And it's like, "Where are all the veterans?" Um, 
But then I will ask, how many of you have a close family or family member who has served in the military or is serving? You get about 80% of people in the room that raise their hands. Then I say, keep them up. How many of you have a close friend who has served in the military? By the time we're finished with this exercise, you've got 99% of the room with their, their hands in the air. And the reason I do that is because I think a lot of people might not realize that they're connected to this population, that that despite your political beliefs or how you align to things culturally or, or what have you, um, you don't always have to agree with what you're seeing on the news or what you're seeing in, in Washington, for example. But what we what we most of us can agree on is that people serve in the military generally for the right reasons. They serve uh, unselfishly. They miss childbirths and they miss graduations and they miss milestones of family members and they miss watching their children grow up and they they miss all of these things for a greater purpose. Um, and that is where we're supporting. We recognize as an organization what we can do to support this population is uh, we can hire. We can hire veterans and we can support them in their careers. And that's about all that we can really do as an organization directly. What we can do indirectly is sponsor and support all of the other organizations out there that are doing all the best work in the military and veteran space. I, I can't impact necessarily uh, the treatment that a wounded veteran gets or the, the benefits that a wounded veteran gets, but I can support, as I mentioned before, the Oscar Mike organization who is supporting them, right? Uh, we can we can use our financial input and our influence to make sure that those organizations stay relevant and that we are speaking on their behalf and they're speaking on our behalf. So when I talk about how the company has transformed or or major milestones, it's those rankings and the storytelling that allow us to come back to the company and then connect to so many people inside of this organization who are then connected to this community. Uh, it brings them into a sense of, I'm proud of the programs that we're running here. I'm proud of the efforts that we have, not only around uh, supporting military and veterans, but I'm proud that I can be involved in these things. I can be in the New York City Veterans Day Parade that we sponsor. Just had some people go to a, a military career fair in Phoenix yesterday, where they would otherwise not have had an opportunity to engage with people in uniform. So it, it helps people get a sense of community and get a sense of connection back to some of the things that we are supporting as an organization, uh, but that they would probably love to participate in their personal lives, but might not otherwise have an opportunity to do so. So that's really how we influence and transform inside of the organization and, and mention some of those milestones along the way. I love everything that uh, you all are doing uh, at Cushman and Wakefield. Um, I've loved learning more about you. Um, where can our students go or, or our alumni to find more information about Cushman and Wakefield? Yeah, listen, our, 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 you can go to our, our website and just Google Cushman and Wakefield. That's really easy. Uh, go in there and look around and, and learn about the business. Uh, I tell people that we do a lot of things in commercial real estate. So it's it's not a product-based company. We're not selling a product that you buy off the shelf, right? So we're, we're a services company providing a, a number of different global services uh, in properties around the world. We manage about 5 billion square feet of property around the world. So uh, multifaceted type of business. If you're looking for career opportunities, those career opportunities can be found inside of that website. Uh, but also we scrape to all of the other major places where you're finding jobs such as LinkedIn and Indeed and things like that. Uh, and, and you can find me on LinkedIn and you can you can follow me around on LinkedIn. It's a great way to connect to what we've got going on. And, and uh, I talk often about 
not only the things that we're doing, but the things that this whole community are doing uh, out there on LinkedIn among my network. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. Is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners out there? Yeah. You know, I'd say this, your success a hundred percent depends on you. Um, Don't leave it in anybody else's hands. Uh, And as I always tell everybody, uh, try to be the, if if you can't be the smartest working person in the room, be the hardest working person in the room. Um, Always look for ways to innovate and impact. Uh, And I mentioned this before about myself, uh, being a servant leader, letting other people do the talking and, 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 and learning how you can help them is how we get the stepping stones of, of our career success. And it's not always going to be a ladder. Sometimes it's a lattice. Sometimes you take steps sideways. You might take a step down from time to time. But as long as you continue to kind of keep your nose to the grindstone and look for new and innovative ways to do the things that you're doing, uh, you will find success. And uh, I, I am sure that most of the great leaders in the world across corporate America would probably agree with that. Yeah, I, I definitely love that. I agree too. Matt, it's been such a pleasure um, to speak with you, to learn more about you, to learn more about your company. Thank you so much for what you do for the military community. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your work with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and we appreciate it. Thank you.